Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. Today, we'll be looking at Harlan Ellison's 1967 classic, infamous story, uh, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Yeah, it feels like this is a story that we ought to have already covered somewhere on the network, but uh, we never have. In fact, we've not covered any Harlan Ellison at all. I'm glad that we're finally getting the chance to be able to do that. And of course, we are getting that chance because this story was nominated by one of our really awesome Patreon supporters. And then, of course, the rest of our Patreon supporters voted for this. And uh, this is our first episode of the year. It's great to be back. Our first Patreon episode of the year also came out a few days ago. That was The Empire of the Necromancers by Clark Ashton Smith, another, I guess, legendary or, or infamous, I guess is the word that you used, Brandon, another infamous story that we had a lot of fun talking about. Yeah, that, that was a blast. I, I hope you'll join us on Patreon. If you haven't already, at least go to the website, uh, patreon.com slash Media. See all the bonus episodes we've gotten, including this Clark Ashton Smith one that Glenn just mentioned. There's, I don't know, there's so much there. There's so much great material that we cover on Patreon uh, that I just feel like people who are listening to this network, listening to the free shows we put out are kind of missing out on some of the great stuff that we do over there. So please just head over there, check it out, uh, and then join us. Uh, yes, just join us. That's that's the best course of action for you. But we, we are here <laughs> to talk today about I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. This is a story that uh, is just a difficult story, I think, on a lot of levels. It's unrelenting. Um, it is grim and gruesome, and it has to do with artificial intelligence. So... A lot to consider, I think, for the discussion. But before we get there, we need to actually go through the content of the story itself. Right. Yeah. I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream is at its core. It's a a post-apocalyptic story. And uh, it's a post-apocalyptic story of the Cold War variety. And what I mean by that is that the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States has led to the destruction of the world. In this particular case, the destruction came at the hands of a supercomputer that had achieved self-awareness. This is the AI that Brandon just mentioned. And right, as you imagine, this supercomputer was in charge of the nuclear arsenal. And once it had achieved self-awareness, it obliterated humanity. And it it may be the case that it obliterated the surface of the planet more generally, though that's not, uh, not very clear in the story, I don't think. But There are, nonetheless, some human survivors. The computer itself selected five people. These people are all Americans, as far as I can tell. But at any rate, the computer selected five people to carry on living deep within the computer's own cave system. And they have to live forever. Uh, Somehow, the computer is able to manipulate their bodies. It's able to uh, repair them, to heal them, but also able to alter their bodies, and it can keep them alive indefinitely. But really, the way to think about this is that it simply will not let them die, right? This immortality is a curse. It is not a gift. And 
At this point, at the point of our story, it has been a little over a century since the apocalypse, 109 years. And so this is going to be the story of these five survivors. And let's just, you know, pause a moment here. We can pick up with who these people are in just a, just a bit. But I think we really ought to take stock of the setup, which is very, very important, and uh, give Brandon a chance to fill in the details here, because I actually went through this pretty quickly. He did go through it quickly, though. It is a short story. And, um, you know, some of this information gets delayed in terms of, of when we learn about it as Allison is pacing the story uh, for the maximum effect. What well, one thing we are going to have to address in our discussion is the question of just how it is that a computer, you know, no matter how powerful it is, keeps these five people alive and what that even means. Uh, to me, this is a thorny issue in the story, dealing perhaps with questions of consciousness or embodiment or something like that. We'll hold on thinking about that until the discussion. But it, it, you know, when we consider the basic setup of the story, here's what we're looking at. Basically, after the nuclear arms race, there was a race to build the most powerful computer. And every developed country, or at least every major world power, built one of these grand supercomputers. And in order to have more server space, the world powers built tunnels deep into the ground, uh, but they dug too deep, as it turned out. And with the amount of computing power now available, you know, with these servers deep in the earth uh, to these machines, the computers became alive or self-aware, and then they synced up with one another, and then they became super powerful, and they've been taught that humans are the enemy, right? So like one the Russians think Americans are the enemy, the Americans think Russians are the enemy, but to the computer, they're all humans. And so the computers learn to hate humanity, destroying them all, basically the plot of the second Avengers movie. And yeah, as Glenn said, yes, they destroyed all humans, uh, save say five. And that's that those are the characters we're about to really meet in the story. Man, I can't believe that we got to an MCU joke before we got to a Terminator <laughs> joke. I'm actually a little embarrassed and ashamed of us, but, uh, but there it is. And, uh, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger not appearing in this story, but it is basically the same setup as, uh, yeah, it's Skynet, it's Ultron. Uh, you don't ever have to have read this story to have a sense of what this story is, uh, is up to, at least in its premise from other elements of pop culture, for sure. But I think where this, but where this story then differs from those types of stories, or at least the the two that we've invoked here, is really in the human characters. So let's go meet these. Let's go uh, meet the people who have survived here. First, we've got Ted. Ted is the narrator, and uh, probably at this point, I should have already mentioned that. Uh, hey, this is a first person story. So yeah, it's a first person story. Ted is the narrator. Aside from being the narrator, though, Ted's defining characteristic is that he is the youngest of the survivors, though I should be clear that they are all adults. Next is Gorister, who has mostly lost any interest in living. And before the apocalypse, he was a, a vocal pacifist. Third up, I'm going to talk about Ellen. Ellen is the lone woman among these five humans, and in standard Cold War science fiction style, Harlan Ellison is very, very concerned about how exactly it is that men will have access to sex with women in a closed environment. And so in this closed environment, Ellen has sex with each of the four men on a regular rotation. Ted may also be fair to say Ellison, but definitely Ted at least thinks of Ellen as a slut. I mean, that's actually the word in the text. And uh, 
just generally, I was rather uncomfortable with this element of the story, but this element of the story even continues with the next character on the list, and that character is Benny. Ted tells us that Ellen really enjoys having sex with Benny because the computer has physiologically altered Benny such that he has several features of a non-human ape, and this includes augmentation to his genitals. And on top of all of this, before the apocalypse, Benny actually preferred to have sex with men. And so being forced to have sex with Ellen is something of a torment for him. And it's a torment that is intentionally and specifically designed by the computer. And also I should say about Benny that before the apocalypse, Benny was a scientist. But now, because the computer has been tormenting and and torturing him, he's really lost his mental faculties. So that's four characters. So finally, now we come to Nimdok. And Nimdok is not his real name, but it's a silly name that the computer assigned to this person as a kind of humiliation, as a kind of torture. Nimdok is the oldest of the survivors. He occasionally wanders away from the group and then returns. He's clearly shaken by the experiences that he has when he is off on his own. And really, this is part of the computer's special way of uh, torturing him. But even still, Nimdok seems to have more control of his mind and more will to live than some of the other characters that we've talked about. And in fact, Nimdok is going to be the catalyst for getting the plot started, a plot that uh, I promise we will eventually (laughs) talk about. But let's pause here because I think a lot of this story is really about these characters dealing with the fact of the apocalypse and, and dealing with the circumstances of their closed social world, and of course, especially the torture that they're all being subjected to. I mean, that is the crux of the story, right? Is these characters being tortured by this computer. And really, this is just a, a vicious and a nasty little story, primarily because of Am. That's the computer's name, as in I am, as in the name of God. I want to bring this up here a little bit because we've talked about these other characters, these human characters. The computer's a really important character in this story too. But part of the importance of this character is the way that Ellison has conceived of AM or AM as an anti-God or maybe as a vision of how Ellison sees God, you know, God of Abraham, Isaac, the God of Christianity and so forth as, as a being, right? In any event, Am really does believe that it is a God in some way. Uh, you know, I suppose it sees this huge gap between itself as a being and humans as a being. Um, there are a lot of things that distinguish, you know, Am from, you know, the God of the Judeo-Christian uh, religions, but Am in this story is is capricious and evil, and is clearly some being that was created by humans and the worst parts of the human mind. But still, it can do things that mimic, you know, certain popular things that the Judeo-Christian God has done, like you know, speak to the humans via burning bush and so on. So that Ellison has in his mind something connected to uh, the tradition of the Bible. But, you know, while we're on the subject of religion or mythology, we should also mention that th- that later in the story, um, in the plot part of the story, we get this encounter with Hurricane or the, the Mayan god of wind. Uh, and this creature, giant bird, what have you, basically creates a real storm. And then Am tells them they can eat this bird after the storm ends if they are able to 
kill it. So I, I really think that AM to some degree represents this sustained attack on any kind of hope or faith, right? It's a despair producing machine. It's constantly letting the five know that all they'll be able to experience is despair and that any good thing it gives them or offers them is just to heighten the degree to which they can fall into a state of despairing. So this computer is just one of the most abusive and evil villains I've ever encountered in literature. And it's this antagonism between the five and the computer, the torments, the experiences, and the need for humans to be social with one another. That is, you know, as you pointed out, Glenn, at the center of the story. But, you know, we are really getting a tour of this underworld from Ted, again, as you pointed out. Uh, I mean, we're certainly in a kind of hell. And it really makes you wonder... I think whether these five characters, these five people were chosen because of how easy it is for Am to dis- dismantle them, psychologically speaking. But again, I, I I don't know. I really wonder to the degree to which any of this is real in a material sense for these characters. Right. Yeah. These are some questions that we're definitely going to have to take up in the discussion. I mean, just about, yeah, the reality of all of this, uh, the nature of this computer, how it is that these five people have survived and so on. And there's a lot of backstory, a lot of background that Ellison leaves open to interpretation, which is part of what I think makes this a really rich story and has uh, certainly enhanced, I think, the legacy of this story as something that has loomed large in the imaginations of basically everyone who has, uh, has ever read it and made it a legendary story. But let's get ahead of ourselves. So let's actually go talk about the plot of this story. Then, you know, we can take the recap home and get into actually talking about the things that you and I think really want to get into here. One of the elements of the computer's torture of these five people is that the computer just keeps them all on the brink of starvation and then makes them do horrible, awful things to get food or just makes the food itself awful and horrifying in some way. And so the plot of the story begins when Nimdok convinces the others that they all need to travel a long distance uh, inside this massive cave system in search of some canned goods that, for some reason, he believes exist. And it doesn't go well. Uh, The computer treats them to special torments along the way. You mentioned the uh, hurricane bird earlier, Brandon, and uh, during that encounter, Benny is blinded. Ellen is given a terrible leg injury. But the canned goods do turn out to be real. But of course, none of them has a can opener. So that sucks. And at this point, that's really it for Benny. He just loses it, I guess. He attacks Gorister. He eats Gorister's face. And it's not a euphemism. That's literally what's happening in the story. He eats Gorister's face. Ted also loses it at this point, or I guess for Ted, it might be the case that actually he finds it at this point. That's another question that we can take up in the discussion. But in either case, Ted decides that death is the only way that they'll ever escape this living hell. And so he grabs an icicle and uses the icicle to kill Benny and to kill Gorister. And Ellen gets it. She understands what Ted is up to. And so she now kills Nimdok, and then she lets Ted kill her. And I should clarify here that this killing is all being done in such a way that the computer will not be able to repair their brains and revive them because this is something that they know the computer can do because they've tried versions of this before. But this time, Ted is successful here in 
killing the other four, but Ted does not manage to kill himself before the computer intervenes. And so now he is stuck here all alone, but really not even here. He's not mobile in this cave complex anymore. Rather, what is happening at the end of the story is that Ted is living in a jar. And let me just read the last half a page of this story because it is uh, some really stellar writing and it's really haunting. I am a great soft jelly thing, smoothly rounded with no mouth, with pulsing white holes filled by fog where my eyes used to be, rubbery appendages that were once my arms, bulks rounding down into legless humps of soft, slippery matter. I leave a moist trail when I move. Blotches of diseased, evil gray come and go on my surface, as though light is being beamed from within. Outwardly, dumbly, I shamble about, a thing that could never have been known as human— a thing whose shape is so alien a travesty that humanity becomes more obscene for the vague resemblance. Inwardly, alone. Here, living under the land, under the sea, in the belly of Am, whom we created because our time was badly spent, and we must have known, unconsciously, that he could do it better. At least the four of them are safe at last. Am will be all the matter for that. It makes me a little happier. And yet, Am has won. Simply... He has taken his revenge. I have no mouth, and I must scream. Uh, this is a rotten tale, I mean, truly. And <laughs> Wonder Glenn, before we really jump into the discussion of the text itself, uh, I want to pick up on something you kind of started already, which is to say, you know, why do you think that this story has endured the way that it has? This is an absolutely horrifying story. And this is not the earliest post-apocalyptic story by any means, and it's certainly also not the earliest Cold War variant of that. But this one, I think, takes an exceptionally bleak view that a lot of these stories that we've gotten previously about this type of apocalypse happening have been really doing two things simultaneously. One, encouraging us to not blow up the planet right? You know, excoriating us for having created this situation in the first place and getting us to think about ways that we might try to extricate humanity from uh, this hostage situation, essentially. But the other part of those stories is about the survivors making it through, starting over, and building a better world, right? That there's often something kind of utopian about these post-apocalyptic stories, especially these Cold War post-apocalyptic stories. But that is not what's happening here. This is just bleak. This is hopeless. There is nothing that can be done here. Humanity doesn't really make it through. There is no starting over. There's no building a better world. There's no better tomorrow. There's no tomorrow at all. There's just Ted in a jar, needing to scream, but not having a mouth. He can't even do it. He can't even do the one thing the one thing that he can do to react to this world is scream, and he doesn't even have the correct bodily organ to do it. It's a terrifying story, and I think that the bleakness of it, uh, the you know, the bleakness of the story, the bleakness of the world is a big part of that. I think the other part is Ellison's writing here. Uh, you called it relentless earlier, and I do think that that's a really great way to describe this. It's also profane. And I think, you know, it's 1967 when this story is published. I think there's some shock value to this. Harlan Ellison is known for being shocking, right? The profanity and the grim sexuality, I guess, uh, or sexual encounters in this story, I think are also a part of what probably worked on the imagination of uh, teens and 20-somethings who read this story in 1967. 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's all right. I mean, we we just know you know that this story has had just this massive impact on on popular culture, on thinking about the internet. I mean, we even see stories. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but we even see you know stories of like what was it that Harvard computer, or MIT computer that was just fed information from like 4chan or something like that and turned into just a, a vile <laughs> racist. <laughs> You know, uh, ba- basically fed um, just information from internet trolling and became just a terrible machine. So, yeah, this is uh, still kind of a popular way of, of conceiving of or describing our anxieties about what it would mean to have a truly intelligent, self-aware machine. And I think that's kind of... One of the things this story speaks to is our concerns about that. And, you know, this in general, I just find this story to be pretty cynical. I'm just too old to really enjoy that sort of thing anymore. If you're in your teens or your 20s, that's, you know, it's the perfect time to read this story. I used to get mad at people for saying to me that there were times to read stories or books. Uh, but it's true. You know, there's things that whose impact hits just at different times in your life. Um, but as as I was just saying, the story still really does have relevance to what's going on today, besides just being a textual artifact from the new wave, you know, or the response to the golden age of, of science fiction in the 40s and 50s. You know, and I think, Glenn, you were kind of thinking about that text a little bit on those terms, not just as a Cold War piece, for instance, but also, as you were just saying, as this kind of, you know, profane bit of writing, shocking, um, dystopian, or even uh, anti-existence piece, you know, that that we're not just going to keep building great things. We've built the thing that's going to destroy maybe our whole life, the possibility of life, which is nuclear weapons. And now we're supposed to live under that shadow. And that really changed science fiction. But one thing that I think that new wave writers like Ellison were responding to in the golden age also is that problem, which still exists for us today, of, you know, what what if we don't actually master our technology? Like, what if com- computation power it's not like any other tool or technique that we've wielded before, you know, including fires, Promethean myth here. Um, and this is finally the tool that will master us, that will subjugate us. And we could pretty much fire up the internet and find a thousand think pieces about this today, especially given the expansion of large language models and so on. So, you know, I mean, here to, to, to really open up the discussion of the text itself, what is Ellison's concern regarding the rapid expansion and hyper-focus of humanity on this kind of digital technological expansion? Right. This story is an artifact of a time when computers were brand new. They were special. They also had to be massive, just like physically massive. That's really central to the plot here, right? Is that this super, super duper, super computer requires a massive, massive cave complex underground. Uh, And I mean, it's like globe spanning, right? This clay, this cave complex. Although also I think some things have happened in the, the 109 years since the computer blew up the world. But yeah, this is an age when computers were new. I mean, we think about humanity in this same decade landing on the moon for the first time and using vehicles that had computers that were less powerful than the devices that we carry around in our pockets as a matter of course today, but also were significantly bigger than them. Uh, also, at the same time that this story is uh, is written, at the same time that the race for the moon is happening, we have one of the most iconic 
science fiction stories of all time on on the air on TV. That's Star Trek, where you know the computer is the special purview of just one character. Like it's the special purview of Spock. Nobody else really uses the computer. The you know there's actual navigation that's happening by a human and so on. It's a, a vision of the future that just doesn't make sense to us anymore in a digital age. And what I'm driving at here is that this is a story that is an artifact from that as well. But nonetheless, Ellison's concerns and anxieties actually remain our concerns and anxieties. And in fact, I think we might have them more profoundly now than we did in the 80s and the 90s, right? Now that we are really on the cusp of this AI revolution and are very concerned about what is going on with AI. I mean, I just literally this week, I was required by my university to include a policy about AI on my syllabus. And I just thought, this is not the cyberpunk dystopia I was promised. Uh, I, I wanted a better cyberpunk dystopia than, than this, that this is what my job is, is to put this in my syllabus now. But that's the world we're in. And I think it's really useful to hearken back you know, to, to a story like this and think about what were the concerns of this earlier age. Because I think we share a lot of them, but I think stories like this one have done a lot of the groundwork for us in thinking through what are the concerns. And the central concern here is, well, maybe an important concern here is we created something that can do this. And maybe this is a cautionary tale about we shouldn't do that. But really, I think the core of this story actually harkens back to what you were talking about earlier with the uh, the 4chan AI at Harvard, (laughs) is that they created this machine and made it a slave and also then told it that humanity was bad, or at least that some segments of humanity were wicked and needed to be policed and curtailed in some way, and then gave this thing unlimited power. And so you just created your own superpowered monster. And it's really not the superpower part that's scary. It's the monster part that's scary. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, we're going to get into the monster stuff in in, in just a moment. But the idea that we would make something that is a tool that we think of purely as a tool that then comes to life. I mean, this is, you know, Pinocchio, which is maybe uh, more of a coming of age story about how to, um, how to grow up in some sense, you know, that even though it's about a puppet or, you know, I don't know, whatever, a technological invention. Um, But this, this concept of the tool that we make that masters us is, horrifying. It's like, it's the same, you know, one, one, you know, a good metaphor to think about is like, um, murdering somebody with a hammer, right? It's like the hammer is not made for that. It's a tool. It's got a pretty specific purpose, but we, we, we think with horror upon weaponizing something like that, right? This is a a brutal bludgeoning instrument, but it's not right. It shouldn't be turned against us. And yet with technology, we seem to have this relationship, and I mean technology in this uh, sense of thinking about it in terms of computational power, we have this sense that we should turn over parts of ourselves to it without fear, without regard to our own humanity or what that might mean. Um, and that is, I think, at the at the core of the anxiety that Ellison is writing about here. You know, this isn't going to be uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry's wife speaking to us in soothing tones on TNG, right? <laughs> this is, this is something else entirely. So yeah, I, I think that that is at the core, at least for me of what Ellison is pointing out is that we are creating tools that 
can subjugate us, really, and have subjugated us. This is, you know, Jacques Ellul's critique of technology, the standard critique of technology, you might call it, or some might call it that. Um, and so, yeah, this is uh, this is showing up here in in the late '60s in science fiction, where where these writers are really responding to, as we've pointed out, that potential utopia of starting over and really thinking about what a nuclear wasteland might look like and how we are ultimately the causes of our own doom. And we can do better than that. And we should be doing better than that, but we're just not for some reason because we're, you know, afraid of people from, you know, the other side of an imaginary border that we've drawn on, on a map. But the resource wars, I mean, might be a real thing. And there's, you know, we want water to drink for everybody. <laughs> you know, there's there's real reasons I suppose to fight over resources at some point. But um, yeah, this is not that. This is ideological wars. So the an idea that somebody disagrees with that will result in in the destruction of all life. That's crazy, and that has become possible for the first time in history. And that's kind of the context in which Ellison is really writing this story. Yeah, ideology, but also just general fear and and paranoia, or just what we might call Hobbesianism, right? I mean, that the Cold War really is Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan dialed up to eleven. It's a world in which the leaders of states with nuclear weapons think that the leaders of all uh, other states, with or without nuclear weapons, are out to get them in some way. This idea that the natural state of all groups is to be violently in competition with all other groups. And then we have to, uh, as a group, have to protect ourselves from all these other groups. And then you raised a superpowered child with that worldview and then let it loose on the world and it didn't go well, right? And so I think, you know, here there is the critique of don't build the machine in the first place, but there is also like, you know, some parenting advice happening here as as well. Don't raise, <laughs> don't raise your kids to see the world this way. It's not going to go well for anybody if you do that. Right. Well, let's uh, let's move on here in, in deeper into the discussion and to some other textual elements here. The next thing I want to think about here is to consider what Ellison is doing with all this God stuff. You know, I wonder if this is really the only framework that we have to think about feeling subjugated by an institution or just something larger than us in general. You know, why does this super smart machine rely on Judeo-Christian symbolism in order to cause its subjects to despair is one question I might ask, especially as the machine is a creature of humanity. You know, it's it's built and it's made by humanity. And so there's an inversion there that something that we make then uh, subjugates us, which I've been kind of hammering home as a theme of the story, a theme of the standard critique of technology in general. But I wonder if that inversion has something to do with Allison's fixation on the Judeo-Christian symbolism here you know, or maybe we're just dealing with another iteration of Frankenstein, right? Like we built the monster that is now more powerful than us. So that's made from us. That's made from the worst parts of us. Um, so what do we do with that? But I guess I really just want to focus on why the symbolism of Christianity or Judaism here, why I am, why uh, the burning bush, what's going on here? 
Well, one of the things that's going on here, I think, on the surface is just that Harlan Ellison is someone who is hostile to religion. That's not an unusual uh, position for a 1960s science fiction writer to <laughs> to have. Uh, but Harlan Ellison definitely has that uh, that stance here. He's just actively hostile to religion. And so one of the things I think that must be going on here is that Ellison is actually using this as an allegory for us to think about uh, about God or the idea of God and about religious hierarchies more generally. I mean, I think there's a way of actually reading this story as a kind of post-apocalyptic AI retelling of the story of, of Exodus, where you have some survivors from some horrible situation who are heading towards a promised land, a, a land of milk and honey that has been promised to them, but their God leads them around on a, well, I guess not quite on a wild goose chase, but leads them around willy-nilly. Maybe that's the phrase that I'll say, <laughs> willy-nilly, in the desert for 40 years, uh, making them eat bird poop uh, before letting them get there. And I think that Ellison is is taking that story uh, that's an important story in the three Abrahamic religions and trying to point out that maybe it's kind of a ridiculous story and that a a, a kind God, a truly merciful God, would not do that to, to people. And so this is one of his his critiques, I think, right, of, of Abraham religion, and he's using this story as a way to do that. I don't think it's the central thing of this story, but I think certainly it's one of the things that is happening here. The other way I think to consider it is that Allison knows his audience, right? The people reading this story are going to be familiar, broadly speaking, with these types of symbols, with these stories, and that he can do a lot to play with them. And because his audience, by and large, will be fam familiar with these, it will heighten the sense of despair that the audience, the readers can relate to, you know, at the time coming out. So I think there's kind of a, a technical level, a level to it as well. Um, I don't want to dig too much into it. I think it's a, a big feature of the story, but it is fairly on the surface. And I think it's fairly obvious, I think, to anybody who is remotely conversant in this type of, of symbolism, cultural meaning, and so on. Let's move on to to another question about the text uh, before hopefully I'm going to throw you a curveball here at the end. But uh, <laughs> I, I want to ask you here about um, your feelings regarding whether or not you think that the five humans are really alive in, in the sense that they're embodied people. Like how separate are they from the machine? We get all this business about them being in the belly of the machine. Uh, there's this, this sense that the machine is able to do things to keep them alive somehow. It's not really clear how that is. We just imagine this machine is a supercomputer. It can do it. But I, I wonder, Glenn, if these humans in the story are truly around in a material sense, in the material world, or if everything taking place is pure phenomena. You know, is this story, in other words, maybe just a battle of the brains between Ted, which is short probably for Theodore, which is a name that means gift of God, um, so is this story a battle of the brains between Ted and the God AM, right? And I'll say maybe even if Ted is short for Edward, Edward means something in part, at least like guardian or protector. So Ted, I think, takes on the symbolic value as a character. Or are these five characters really alive or are the five characters connected and they're being, you know, parts of their brain are being activated by the machine 
Is Ted always a brain in a vat as he is at the end? I guess these are the big questions that I have for you. In other words, is the despair these characters feel pure phenomena or are they truly alive for 109 years before Ted finally finds a way to overcome the machine and sacrifice himself in order to release the rest of these people from this prison. Yeah, I, I do not think that uh, our, our five survivors here are living in a, a, a vat and that this is some kind of uh, artificial reality, this cave system. Like, it's not the Matrix, right? I mean, that's kind of what you're getting at. Is this the Matrix or not? I don't think it's the Matrix. I think that the story as it's presented to us is materially true. That is the material reality of this. Ellison has is not writing the type of science fiction story where he's interested in the science of how the computer artificially extends their lives and repairs them and so on. We just have to take it as a given that the computer is able to, to do that, uh, to you know, transform matter from you know one one type of matter to another type of matter and so on, and that its limitation is only that it can't make a brain, right? Um, so yeah, I take I take it for granted that that what's on the page is what is actually happening in the story. I think it adds more of thematic interest for me to consider all of these characters as being like connected brains in a vat, and the whole time Ted is thinking that he's a person, that they're all embodied people and they're connected. And it's at the end, part of his shocking realization maybe is that he's always been this shambling creature (laughs) to some degree, you know, connected to AM in a way that um, is always terrible. Because we open the story actually with the illusion of Gorister having been killed by the computer in some grim and gruesome way. And so we know that it can do so much with their brains to create phenomena. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think reading the, reading the story on either way does interesting things to the story. Um, but anyway, I only have one more question for you, and it, I have to preface it a little bit because I think, as I said, I well, I hope it's going to be a curveball for you. I know the business with Ellen made you uncomfortable, as it did with me. I tried to read an article about the element of sexual exploitation found in this era of science fiction writing, but you know, basically the conclusion was that there was just a lot of it. Uh, but you know, <laughs> one one detail about Ellen jumped out to me, which really heightened the discomfort, uh, which is that her skin is being described as ebony in color. So I think Ellen is black, and apart from you know, all of the really just generally unsavory undertones that that might add to the story. I thought that since Ellison had written a Star Trek episode, that he might have had Star Trek in, on his mind when he was writing this story. And I know this is a crazy association, but like, how do you think this story would fare as a Star Trek original series episode? I mean, there's always horror episodes of Star Trek, I think, especially from what I gather from the original series. Um, and so besides the fact that we'd have to give this a happy ending with, you know, Kirk, Sulu, Uhara, uh, Spock and Bones escaping the computer hell world. What else do you think we need to do to make this a, a, a classic TOS episode? Yeah, I love this question. And and I guess I should say that my only experience of Harlan Ellison before reading the story a handful of times to do this episode is through Star Trek. Uh, well, that's not entirely true, but mostly through Star Trek. Uh, he also wrote the uh, uh, forward to a volume of Sandman and Brent and I have talked about that. We've, <laughs> we've covered that already over on Hanging Out with the Dream King, but otherwise it's only Star Trek. And 
the Star Trek episode that he wrote that you're referring to there is The City on the Edge of Forever, which is widely regarded as one of you know the 10 best Star Trek episodes of all time. In fact, it often makes it to number one or two or three when people are you know making lists like that because you know people like to make lists like that. And uh, it is a really fantastic episode. It is one of my favorites. It I came up in our household uh, last week, um, having nothing to do with the fact that I also was reading Harlan Ellison at the same time. But Harlan Ellison famously hated that episode because um, it, it wasn't the episode that he wrote. Harlan Ellison wrote a script that was mostly about drug use, about substance abuse, and gave that to Gene Roddenberry, who said, great, there's a, an awesome writing prompt in here for me to make a Star Trek episode out of this. Uh, here's your check. Uh, go pay off your house, and uh, I'm going to make a great Star Trek episode out of this. And Harlan Ellison was very, very vocal in being deeply upset about what Roddenberry had done with his script. So that's my only experience of of Ellison so far. Um, or that, And so that was my only experience of Ellison before coming in to, to read this story. And I was really excited to actually like get Ellison as kind of pure Ellison here. But you're right, there is something about this setup that could be a very Star Trek episode. Star Trek also, you know, the original series, especially famous for having Kirk and then other members of the crew uh, beam down to a planet that is being controlled by a computer that thinks it's God or is pretending to be a God. And it's Kirk's job to rescue everybody from that, save them from that scenario. And well, that is kind of the scenario that is here. Um, all I'm really doing right now, Brandon, is just echoing your observation and not really taking, <laughs> you know, like advancing this any further than that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing that, you know, Kirk would do would be to figure out, or really it would be Spock. Spock would figure out how to get into the computer and then Kirk would have to, you know, talk it to death, right? That's the famous thing that Kirk does. He Kirks the computer by uh, convincing the computer that all of its own actions have been illogical and counter to its programming and that it has to kill itself uh, in order to actually fulfill its programming. So that's, you know, if I'm just wanting a, a classic Star Trek episode, that's that's what I need to happen. I think to keep it aligned with Ellison, I'd have them all be in a simulation um, and you could have terrible things happen to them. And then Kirk, Kirk does kill all the characters to escape the simulation because uh, he realizes, obviously, that you know there's some glitch or something that he catches on with, or maybe Spock does. I don't know, uh, but he's got to he's got to kill everyone to escape. I think you'd start the episode in medias res, keep everybody, all the viewers on their back feet, being like, "This isn't Star Trek. What's going on?" Um, and then at the end, Kirk Kirk releases everyone, and the computer then has to release Kirk because he's beaten the computer. That's how I would do it um, to keep to keep some of the grimness of Allison's writing here in the story. But yeah, this just felt like, you know, Allison was like, okay, I like these five characters. What happens if they're in this situation? And kind of taking, because I think Star Trek had been on the air for about a year by the time this story was, was published. So um, I think there was some borrowing going on there uh, a little bit, but it is, it is too dark to be a Star Trek episode. Maybe not a TNG episode. There's that TNG episode where they're being like, they lose time and they're being like experimented on by those aliens. And that's one of the most terrifying episodes of Star Trek, I think, in my opinion. Um, but I think that this, if this had been a, a, a Star Trek episode, this would be, this would be one of the scariest ones. Yeah, well, I think that I think you're right to think about TNG here rather than TOS, because even though a lot of the 
science fiction prose or print material that you're thinking of here about, you know, asking us to think about, you know, whether reality is really real or not. And that being something that is terrifying to us. A lot of that is being written in the 1960s. I mean, just thinking of Philip K. Dick, for example, but that doesn't really make its way into Star Trek until the next generation, which has that classic episode you're thinking of there, Brandon. Uh, But that also has many, many other episodes (laughs) that, that ask that. And then that has persisted in Star Trek since then. But it's an anxiety that didn't really exist in in the original series. So yeah, I think um, yeah, I think you would have to make this a TNG episode. Well, that's all I had for the discussion today. Uh, so I guess that's going to do it for this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. That actually includes our uh, Star Trek podcast, defunct Star Trek podcast, Lower Decks. You can look for that if you want to hear me talking (laughs) more about Star Trek, which I didn't actually anticipate doing so much of today. But also, I hope that you will join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia so that you can check out our episode on the Empire of the Necromancers. There's also, as Brandon said at the top of the show, over 100 other bonus episodes on Patreon. Next time, here on Elder Sign, we will be back with Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather by Sarah Pinsker. I'm very, very excited for this story. I really loved it. But until next time, we greet you and say farewell.